0: You know, these days, a lot of people call themselves Christian, but a lot of people also don't really understand what being a Christian really is. There's widespread confusion, I think, today as to what a Christian really should be. Some confusion exists because every generation needs to address theological issues and doctrinal stances afresh. You know, even if we have a great heritage of faith, To build upon, and we certainly do, you think about the giants of our faith, you think about the great statesmen of our faith, that we look back and we study and we see the the strides that they made and and the uh, doctrine that they were able to espouse and and all of the great accomplishments that have been made over the last 2,000 years. Even with all of that heritage to build upon, If that heritage is not taught, well, the the heritage is lost. And so every generation needs to come to its own understanding of what it really means to have all of these different theological and doctrinal and life issues. And one of the most important ones is what does it mean to be a Christian? I think there's widespread confusion because perhaps our generations that we have been uh, told to teach We've not done a real good job of teaching. And uh, maybe there's been something lost there. But I think there's also confusion because Satan is active in this world. Satan is the author of confusion. And let's suppose someone, uh, we'll call him Billy. Let's suppose a person like Billy is lost. And he doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not born again. This person, Billy, or whoever it might be, if he begins to think I'm a Christian if Satan can somehow convince Billy who's lost to think well I'm a Christian then Billy will never ever believe that he has a need for God he thinks that he's already good between him and God he'll never establish the need in his own life to have his sins forgiven to receive Christ and so Satan has many ways to send to the lost people of this world confusing signals about being a Christian. And one of his favorite ways is to do this through mass media. The media, the press, has a way of of really messing, messing things up when it comes to understanding what it means to be a Christian. And when famous people make it a point to proclaim to the press, proclaim to the world, proclaim to everyone on social media that, hey, I'm a Christian, than those of us who have invested every aspect of our being in trying to actually be a Christian, and we've also invested so much effort in helping other people to become Christians, we have both a right and an obligation to seek clarity on the issue of what it means to be a Christian. And so we explore this issue, we seek clarity on what makes a person a Christian, not because we wish to criticize anyone else, but because really we want to judge ourselves. Judgment starts with us. And so we want to look introspectively at ourselves and make sure that we're right with the Lord and make sure that we have our own understanding and the proper understanding of what it means to be a Christian. We seek clarity on what makes a person a Christian, not because it might be a hot topic in politics or a hot topic in the media, uh, but because it's such an important topic in Scripture. And we seek clarity on what makes a person a Christian not because this world thinks it's important. The world doesn't. The world does not care what a Christian is or or whatever else. The world just really doesn't care. And so we don't seek clarity because we're driven by the world's desires but rather because eternity will show exactly how important being a Christian really is. And so this is, I believe, a critical issue regardless of whether this world sees it as such. And so... Today I want to illustrate the kinds of confusing messages that are out there with regard to being a a Christian. And someone made a a comment last year with regard to his relationship with God. And it really doesn't matter whether the person who made the comment is an actor or the person who made the comment is a musician. Uh, He happens to be a politician. And like I said, it doesn't really matter what field of life he's in. But last year, there was a a comment that was made that I think will bring great clarity on some of the difficulties that we find with regard to being a Christian and what that actually means. Now, now I know that when I walk into any kind of a sermon and I mention something about politics, I'm walking into dangerous waters. But I want you to understand I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about being a Christian and I've been your pastor long enough for you to know the content of my teaching. I I don't teach a lot of social ills and how we need to fix social ills. My agenda is to be determined like Paul said to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so my goal is to teach the whole counsel of God. And so when when uh, scripture addresses certain social issues, we'll address those issues but you have to understand and i think you do that social issues political issues are not the focus of my teaching you know the job of the church is not to win elections the job of the church is not to get laws passed the job of the church is to make disciples but here's the problem we can't make disciples if we don't even know understand what being a disciple really is and so even though i'm going to mention as a point of reference and illustration a certain politician I'm simply doing it as an example, Now I wouldn't use him as an example if he wasn't the one who brought up the issue. And so I'd, I'd ask you to look at it this way, that um, I'm not stepping into the realm of politics, but rather sometimes politicians have uh, their own way of stepping into the realm of doctrine. And so uh, just to be uh, broad in this statement, I'm, I'm not going to allow any politician, whether they're pandering opportunists or sincere Uh, Christ followers define what a Christian is we need to go to what scripture says with regard to what a Christian is and if we pander to common thoughts or to anyone's statement out there in the media if we allowed that to happen and we allowed them to set the standard as to what a Christian is and what a Christian really is not then we suffer the possibility of uh, causing confusion and confused people might suffer themselves in eternity in hell and so, uh, and by the way, I don't play the game that Christians have to be silent about any topic that politicians bring up. If scripture speaks on a topic, then we'll speak on it. And scripture speaks with great clarity with what a Christian really is. There are, however, some politicians and actors and musicians and whoever else that seem to be greatly confused. And the, uh, the comment that I want to uh, reference here was made by Donald Trump last year. He says that he's a Christian. Now, I'm not going to judge his spiritual condition. God can do that. God's much more qualified than than you and I are. But I do want to examine the content of the statement that he made. And I don't want to review everything that Mr. Trump has said about the Bible or about God. For our purposes today, it doesn't matter whether he called it, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Uh, I mean... It may just show, that may just show that he was pandering a little bit too hard for evangelical votes, but it really doesn't get at the core issue today. In July, Mr. Trump was asked this question. I think it's a fantastic question for anyone, not just politicians, but for anyone. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? Now, that's a great question. And a uh, Christian commentator asked him that question. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And By the way, you know, that question may not be a constitutional requirement for presidential candidates, but I think it's a very important question for all of us, no matter what area of life we come from. And his answer was very revealing of what some people think being a Christian is. He said, and I quote, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture, I don't. Now I want you to understand a couple of things with regard to politics, you know, vote for whoever you want. I mean, it's your choice, I don't think that a uh, president has to be a Bible scholar or even a Bible reader or even a Christian to do a good job. Um, I think it certainly helped the person if he was grounded in the faith, if he had a a good understanding of the Judeo-Christian heritage and traditions and the foundation that we have that's built our country, made it great. But it's certainly not a constitutional requirement. But more importantly, and more to the point here, asking God for forgiveness is part of what a Christian really is. And you simply cannot be what Scripture calls a Christian if you don't ask God for forgiveness. Scripture tells us very specifically what the characteristics of a Christian are. And I want you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll read today verses 13 through 16. And then we'll go back and we'll look at this more carefully. Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And he says, he's talking about when he came and visited them and he's thankful to God for them. And he says these words in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, But for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. In this passage of Scripture, as Paul is giving thanks to God for the Thessalonians, he happens to mention a number of things, qualities, or characteristics about the Thessalonians that mark them as Christians, as Christ followers. And so I want to examine this a little bit closer. The first characteristic of being a Christian is that Christians have listened to the gospel. Verse 13 begins. Paul says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, Paul says he thanks God that they received the word of God, they listened to the word of God when Paul brought the gospel to them. You know, there's a lot of people today who think that they're Christians because of their family's religious or spiritual heritage. They say, well, my, I'm, I'm Catholic. My family's Catholic. Or they say, I'm, I'm Presbyterian, meaning my family's Presbyterian. I was brought up that way. Or, or they say, I'm Baptist. I was brought up that way and went to church that way. Or my granddaddy or somebody was a deacon or whatever else. And they think that, the, that, that because their family has a spiritual or religious heritage, that that makes them Christian. But listen to me. Coming from a family with a spiritual heritage is like coming from a family with a lot of money in, in this way. If they didn't leave you any, you're broke. And that's true whether you're talking about money or it's true whether you're talking about spiritual heritage. You may come from the greatest spiritual heritage in the world, but if somehow you didn't inherit any of it yourself, you're broke spiritually. Just because your family calls itself Christian doesn't mean that you are. And so, that very first characteristic that Paul mentions of being a Christian is that you've heard the gospel, you received the word of God. What's the gospel? We know what the gospel is. It's the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. He came in fleshly form. He lived among us. He lived without sin. He died on a cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the grave to give us life eternal. And He's coming back someday. That's the gospel of God. And to anyone who would receive Jesus, Jesus offers that person forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Listen, a person who has not heard That message is not a Christian, regardless of his or her family's spiritual heritage. That's the very first characteristic that you have heard the gospel. Not only did they hear the gospel, but secondly, they accepted the gospel as the Word of God. Christians have accepted the gospel as the Word of God. Verse 13 says... Paul continues, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for, for what it really is, the word of God. You see, that gospel message, that gospel story, that story that is unlike any other story that has ever been told, it comes from God and it must come from God. The essential message of the gospel is from God. It's the, and when we talk about a message being from God, that means that this is the message that God wants you to hear. If God could say one thing to you, if he could say one thing to humanity, what would God say? The answer is, God would say, this is the good news, that I've come in the flesh, I became one of you, and I died to pay for your sins, and I rose from the grave, and I am the king. That's the good news. That's the essential message that God wants all people to hear. And it is the message that we must share with others. Every other message is the word of man. Every other message. Man says there are many ways to God. All religions lead to God. You just have to be sincere. Man says that man says it doesn't matter how you live god will just sort of overlook your sins man says you can earn god's forgiveness by being good helping little ladies across the street or doing whatever you can do to to be just be a good person just don't murder someone or commit one of the big sins and and it's all good god will sort of overlook it and you can if you've sort of messed up in the past that'll all be wiped clean just be a good person that's what man says Man says, Muhammad is a prophet. Man says, Buddha is the way to peace. Man says, salvation comes by having faith in God and earning your own way through your good works. Every other message is from man. But there's one message that is from God. And it is the message that you're not good enough. There's nothing you can do but God made a way. God made a way through Christ for you to be forgiven the gospel is from God God says there's only one way to him there's only one way to him Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me God says that he poured out his wrath for our sins on Jesus in first John chapter 2 verse 2 we read that He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. God says that Jesus has given us forgiveness through His death on the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 3.18, God says that for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, having been made or put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. God says that accepting the gospel by faith is the only way to salvation. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 9 that if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. In fact, in the previous verse he said, if an angel from heaven preaches a different message, that angel is to be accursed because the gospel is that true. The gospel is from God. The third character characteristic of being a christian is this christians have believed in the gospel christians have believed in the gospel not only did you hear it not only did you make the evaluation in your own heart that this is the word of god but it is something that you believe in it's something that you trust in verse 13 says paul continues which also performs its work in you who believe. In other words Paul is saying not only did this gospel come from God but this gospel this story is not just like any other kind of story. Any other kind of story tells a message but the gospel is different. It tells a message that transforms. It tells a message that completely changes a person from the inside out. It performs its work. And you who believe there's a couple of things going on here talk first of all it talks about the message that the gospel performs a work it does something but it also talks about only in those who believe let's take the belief part first belief without a personal belief in the good news of jesus christ you are not a christian now, if you don't have a personal belief in the good news in the gospel story you're not a christian First John 1 John 1.12 says, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You have to believe in the gospel. You have to believe in Jesus Christ to have the right to become the child of God. God makes you his child once you believe in him. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, you know this verse: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, what, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You must believe that is our response, to have faith in Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What is it about believing that is so important? What is it about believing that is so important? I mean, is there something about the nature of belief that differentiates it from simply being religious? I mean, what's the, what's the big difference between coming to church every Sunday and singing songs and listening to the message and going home and being religious, being in that habit, going through those rituals and rites and all of that? Is there something different between that and actually believing in the message that is proclaimed? Yes, there's something very different. You see, being religious results in a false sense of being right with God. Being religious, and only religious, results in a false sense of being right with God. But believing in Christ results in righteousness. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Why? For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. You see, the word of God is effective only to those that believe it. There was a theologian that passed away last year, I. Howard Marshall, a great man of God. And he said this. He said, it is in believers that the word is effective. Those who accept it as the word of God experience its transforming power. But where faith is lacking, the word is powerless. Where faith is lacking, the word of God is powerless. Have you ever known someone who knew the Bible, knew a lot about the Bible, but the power of God was not upon them because they did not believe in what the Bible said? They might even be an atheist or an agnostic, but they happen to know a lot of information about the Bible. To them, the Bible is simply an interesting book, a book that other people believe in, a book of great history, a book of great knowledge sort of up there with the Encyclopedia Britannica. The Bible is nothing more than that to them. But to those of us who believe, what is it? It is the way, it is the means by which our lives are changed. It is how God, the Spirit of God, moves in our heart as we interact with His Word and changes us from the inside out. He turns cantankerous, mean-spirited people into loving sweet believers in christ he turns those that lust after their own desires into those that desire the word of god he turns people who are after nothing more than money and, and and greed and their own selfish desires and turns them into generous people who look out for others the word of god is effective in our lives there's a fourth characteristic of being a Christian that Paul mentions. Christians endure suffering. Christians endure suffering. So not only did the word of God come to you and you heard it, not only did you accept it as a message that is unlike any other message that is out there, not the message of man but the message of God, not only did you believe it in your heart, but then it had its work in you so that you endure suffering. In verses 14 and through 15 and 16 actually, we read, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. You see, even Paul came to Thessalonica for the very first time to preach the gospel, he quickly made his way to the Jewish synagogue to establish rapport with with fellow Jews, for he himself was a Jew. And once he had gained their trust, he was invited to speak. And over the next three Sabbaths, Paul began to speak from the Hebrew Scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament. And he explained how the Scriptures said that the Messiah would suffer, how the Messiah would die, and how the Messiah would rise from the grave. And the second thing he mentioned was that how Jesus, he also suffered and died and rose from the grave. And his conclusion was simply that Jesus must be the Messiah. Well, there were some Jews and some Greek uh, uh, believers or some God-fearing believers that heard the message and they believed in it. But other Jews and other people were unbelieving. And some of the other Jews began to fear what Paul's message was saying and the implications of it because there was a recent persecution of Jews in Rome just about a year before and all the Jews were kicked out of Rome and these Jews there in Thessalonica they began to fear that if Paul was allowed to keep preaching that there's only one king and his name is not Caesar there's only one king and it is the Lord Jesus Christ that the authorities from Rome would come and persecute the Jews as well and so they had to get rid of Paul and they got him out of town kicked him out mistreated them and Paul left but what Paul left there was a brand new group of believers babes in Christ who needed a foundation who needed encouragement and they were at a distinct disadvantage than most believers because not only did they face all the difficulties that young believers would face but they also faced direct opposition from the Jews, direct opposition from the powerful uh, politicians, the Gentiles that ran the city, who did not want trouble coming to their area. And so these new believers in Christ, they're immediately shunned by others, mistreated by others, and Paul knew that he left them in a difficult situation. And so quickly he wrote this letter that we call the book of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul said to these Thessalonians how... Thankful he is to God for them, and he commends them for enduring persecution and not abandoning their faith in Christ, which would have been so easy to do. But in doing so, in in staying the course and being steadfast in their faith, they were essentially imitating their brothers in Christ who also suffered in Judea at the hands of Jewish authorities there. In verses 15 and 16, Paul had some very specific and pointed comments about his fellow Jews who had opposed him. He says in verses 15 and 16, They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. You know, all Christians have to endure suffering from the enemies of God. How do you identify the enemies of God? What do they do? They do the same characteristics today. They're the ones, like in verse 15, who mock and hate Jesus. They're the ones who mock and hate those who speak up for Jesus. Verse 15 says that the, back in that day, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove us out. The enemies of God today are those who mock Jesus. They're those who mock those of us who want to follow Jesus. They're the ones who are hostile to our faith. Paul says they're not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to all men. They're, They're just hateful people. And especially hateful to the people of God. The enemies of God's message are the ones who don't want us to share the gospel. They want to shut us out of the public marketplace. They want to make sure that we're quiet and we don't offend anybody with our message. Just like in that day. Why don't you just keep your message to yourself? They say. Verse 16 Paul says they were hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. You have people today, Freedom From Religion Foundation, that seeks to shut up any type of spiritual speech that is spoken in any realm other than a private gathering of Christians. They don't want us to share the gospel. But in doing all of this, what does Paul say about them? He says they're Their sins fill up their lives to overflowing, and God's wrath has come upon them. Wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Paul was writing here to these brand new believers in Christ who had such an uphill battle. Here we are 2,000 years later. We have such an incredible heritage of our faith. And yet I look and I see the situation that our society is in and i see that we're facing the exact same battle the exact same situation people hostile to our faith people opposing us at every turn wanting us to just shut up and not share the love of christ with anyone else and somehow some of us have thought well you know if i'm going to be a christian i I shouldn't i shouldn't wish to offend anyone and maybe i should just shut up maybe i should just keep my mouth shut Maybe I shouldn't share Christ with anyone else because it might hurt someone's feelings. But don't you understand that this was a message that Paul, even though he was kicked out of town after town, he kept going to new towns and kept sharing the gospel, at great cost to himself, that it cost him years of imprisonment, cost him his very life. He couldn't shut up. Why? Because the cost was too great. If he had shut his mouth, God would have raised up someone else to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And we can't shut up either. We have the gospel message, that message that is from God. Every other message out there, every other message is not from God. There's only one message that is from God. And it is the message that you understand and that I understand. We have to be the people to share it who else will share it? will the government share the gospel? will the YMCA share the gospel? will politicians will the media actors actresses it has to be you and me we have to share the gospel and even if you think well you know what kind of influence do I have I don't I don't really uh, influence that many people oh yes you do. you have a great influence. The breadth of the influence that you have is greater than you know. You just have to be faithful and share the love of Christ and share the message of Christ in a godly fashion wherever you have the opportunity. And let God work out the results. Let God be the one who takes the seeds that you plant and grow them up to full measure.